You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Transplantation, produced in cooperation with Indiana University Health, covering current issues and practices in transplant medicine. IU Health, discover the strength of a leading national transplant center. Your host is Dr. Aaron Carroll, Associate Professor of Pediatrics, Director of the Center for Health Policy and Professionalism Research, and Associate Director of Children's Health Services Research at Indiana University School of Medicine. Treatment options for hepatocellular carcinoma include resection, ablation, and transplantation. Which patients might benefit most from liver transplant? Our guest is Dr. Mary Maluccio, Director of the Liver Oncology Program at Indiana University Health. Welcome, Dr. Maluccio. Thank you. What are the causes of hepatocellular carcinoma? Hepatocellular carcinoma usually presents in patients with underlying liver disease, of which hepatitis C is probably the most common cause of hepatocellular cancer in the United States, but it can also be in patients with underlying liver disease from alcohol or fatty infiltration of the liver or iron overload. And how common is hepatocellular carcinoma in the United States? I think it's relatively common. It's one of the cancers that is increasing in incidence whereas other cancers have been shown to either plateau or decline over the last decade. A lot of that has to do with the hepatitis C patient population from 20 years ago maturing and therefore presenting with the cancer around 20 years after their initial infection. If there are around 4 million patients in the United States with hepatitis C, using hepatitis C as the example, around 20% of patients with hepatitis C will develop a cancer over the course of their lifetime. So if hepatocellular carcinoma has been increasing in incidence because of a past infection with hepatitis C, do you expect the incidence to continue to increase in the future, or will it just plateau at a later date? Well, I think we expect it to plateau, and I think a lot of people in our field are surprised that it hasn't plateaued, seeing that really the incident rates of hepatitis C are, you know, becoming a little bit more stable. I think what we're finding is that some of the other underlying liver diseases, such as non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, is just sort of coming into the fray as another cause or another etiology of hepatocellular carcinoma. So I think where we may see less of it in the hepatitis C patient population, we're going to see more of it in the NASH patient population. How is hepatocellular cancer diagnosed? Well, that's a very good question. It's very difficult to diagnose, and for the most part, worldwide, it's in patients with known underlying liver disease that are in surveillance programs. In the United States, we don't have very robust surveillance programs, although we do have a robust surveillance program at Indiana University. And primarily, we will follow patients with known underlying liver disease until they reach a certain stage of fibrosis. And hepatocellular cancer rarely develops without the patient having gone through and had severe fibrosis, which we also call cirrhosis. We will biopsy patients until the time they reach stage 4 fibrosis, and then we will start following them with imaging. And the imaging that we most commonly use will be cross-sectional imaging like CT scans. And hepatocellular cancer has a very characteristic enhancement pattern on CT scans. Are most patients diagnosed early or late in the disease? If you were to look at at countrywide, I think that they are diagnosed relatively late in the course of the disease. In patients with known underlying liver disease that are in surveillance programs, we have the chance of catching them much earlier in the time course, and those are the patients that we are targeting for liver transplant. 
What treatment options are available to people who are diagnosed with hepatocellular cancer? There are a number of treatment options available, and it sort of depends on several variables. Some of those variables are related to the tumor, and some of those variables are related to the underlying liver disease. Each treatment option, you have to weigh and or balance the effect of that treatment on the cancer and the effect of that treatment on a vulnerable background liver The most common that we will use is some form of catheter-based technique, of which chemoembolization is probably the most well-known. We've switched uniformly to to a radiation-eluting microsphere called yttrium-90 because it is far better tolerated in patients with moderate liver disease, for example, the child's B uh, cirrhotic patients. We also have something called targeted radiation. We call it stereotactic body radiotherapy, but other people have used gamma knife or cyber knife techniques in a similar fashion, and those are very good for solitary tumors up to a certain size. Our size limit happens to be around six centimeters. And then you do have the ablation techniques, of which the two most common are going to be radiofrequency ablation and microwave ablation, both using a thermal-based system to adequately treat tumors. Once again, those are best used in patients with solitary tumors up to a certain size. Well, it sounds like that there's a lot of options. Are there any broad patient or tumor characteristics that would push you towards one therapy or another? Absolutely. Depending on how the patient presents and the size of the tumor and or the tumor, the burden within the liver, we will choose one therapy over another. Any patient that has a solitary tumor, the targeted therapies, of which I gave you an example of SBRT or ablation, are very good because the detrimental effect on the background liver is very, very small. Anyone that has really more than one lesion or multifocal disease, we will shift over to use a catheter-based technique. And the major advantage of the catheter-based technique is you can blanket more of the liver parenchyma with treatment and therefore treat a broader area. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Advances in Transplantation on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Carroll. Our guest today is Dr. Mary Maluccio, Director of the Liver Oncology Program at Indiana University Health. We're discussing transplant and treatment options for patients with hepatocellular carcinoma. So, Dr. Maluccio, when should liver transplant be considered for patients with hepatocellular carcinoma? I think that liver transplant should be considered in almost any patient that has a hepatocellular cancer that fits within a certain criteria. And there are well-established criteria that will give some guarantee that the patient should do well with respect to cancer-specific outcomes after transplant. And those criteria are described as the Milan criteria. And that includes a patient with a single tumor up to five centimeters or three tumors with no tumor being greater than three centimeters. That is the criteria that we use nationwide for the organ allocation within this country. There are many centers, including our own, that are trying to push the limits of what transplant can offer patients with hepatocellular cancer that don't necessarily fall into that very strict criteria so that there are modified criteria and our institution and other institutions have found that you can treat a broader patient population as long as you understand a couple things about the patient and the tumor. One, that the tumor is adequately controlled with liver-directed therapies or that the tumor or tumors don't have a as aggressive a biology as they may appear if you were to look at the tumors at face value. And those modified criteria will include tumors up to around six and a half centimeters in size, 
or multiple tumors as long as the tumor burden doesn't exceed a total of eight centimeters. And there are a number of institutions that have published on the ability to safely choose transplant and still maintain what we think are reasonable cancer-specific outcomes. What are some of the advantages and disadvantages to liver transplant for hepatocellular carcinoma? Well, I think most of it are advantages. The liver transplant will adequately treat both the tumor and the underlying liver disease that had the propensity to make the tumors in the first place. So, for example, using hepatitis C as the best example of a very worrisome soil, hepatitis C has the highest chance of either having multifocal tumors or multiple tumors within that liver or have a high propensity to form de novo tumors once a single tumor has been diagnosed. And the only way that we will be able to get rid of the soil that has the propensity to make the tumors would be liver transplant. I think one of the disadvantages of liver transplant is it requires a huge commitment by both the medical professionals and the patient to come for adequate follow-up, to take the medications, to have sort of a behavior modification that is congruent with doing well after liver transplant. And some of the patient population will struggle with some of those aspects that, you know, that will ultimately, you know, potentially affect outcome. Can you give us an idea about what the general wait time would be for a liver transplant candidate to actually get a liver for transplant? Wait times for patients with cancer are variable nationwide. A lot of it has to do with the region that the patient falls into. There are certain regions where either the donor pool does not meet the needs of the patient population, for example, the coastal regions, either New York or California, or you'll have regions where the donor organs aren't necessarily suitable for the patient population. For example, the Midwest has a a larger BMI patient population. But for the most part, the cancer patients in this country wait somewhere around three months. And our Midwest region tends to do a little bit better, and it has a lot to do with the number of transplant centers within our region vying for the local and or regional organs that are being allocated. Nationwide, I say that the average is probably closer to around 9 to 12 months. Is liver transplant from a living donor a viable option for someone with hepatocellular carcinoma? That is a viable option, although one that is not used very frequently in the United States. We don't use it at Indiana University because we can successfully navigate the organ allocation system for our patient population. So our patient waiting versus the organs that are available seems to have a balance where we don't lose people off the wait list and we can get them treated and or transplanted in a timely fashion. I think if you were to look at the regions around the country that have trouble meeting their organ allocation needs, those are the programs that have ventured into living-related donor pools. The major disadvantage of the living-related donor pool is the time that it takes to get the liver out of the donor patient will increase what we call the warm ischemia time of that organ And the warm ischemia time is an independent predictor of how that organ will function post-transplant. So a cadaveric donor is just a very straightforward and a more reliable ischemia time, whereas the living-related has a lot to do with how difficult it is to get the half of the liver out of the donor. Now, is what you just described as a potential downside of living-related donor, is that true for all liver transplants or just for those that are related to hepatocellular carcinoma? Oh, no, that's related to all 
So the living-related donor pool, no matter what patient population you're in, you're going to struggle with those unique aspects of living-related donation that make it more challenging. Can you tell us what extended criteria are and when you would use or consider extended criteria donors? Sure. Extended criteria donor pools is actually sort of, I think, a bit of a misnomer. And when we first started describing extended criteria, it meant that institutions or transplant programs would accept a donor organ that would not have met what was previously considered either reasonable or accepted criteria. And the examples can be very broad. It can be the amount of fat that is noted within the donor organ. It can be how sick the patient was before they ultimately met their demise. It could be some certain lab values that would suggest that the liver had taken a certain injury in the course of the illness. And so there was no one particular variable, but that we started to just use this term, extended criteria donation. And I think that IU was one of those centers that seemed to be highlighted as one that would use those extended criteria donors. I think now we look at it more in pairing the appropriate organ to the appropriate patient. And what I mean by that is that there are certain patients that will go into transplant somewhat sturdier physiologically, and there are some patients that will go in quite vulnerable. And if you're going to use an organ that may have been, you know, sort of labeled as extended criteria or maybe not the pristine organ that you would like, you can put that organ into a physiologically sturdy patient and win. So that organ will function as you would if you would put in a standard organ. Whereas what they found, I think it was UCLA that published a paper, is that if you put a vulnerable organ in a vulnerable patient, then the outcome is undesirable. And so we now have a better understanding of what patients will do well with organs that potentially have a little bit more fat than was previously acceptable. And from a cancer perspective, it's usually the cancer patients that go into transplant sturdier because they have the additional aspect of the cancer that gives them exception points, but it gives them exception points because the cancer becomes as life-limiting, if not more life-limiting, than the underlying liver disease in that patient. We've been talking with Dr. Mary Maluccio about transplant and treatment options for patients with hepatocellular carcinoma. Dr. Maluccio, thank you for being our guest. No problem. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Advances in Transplantation on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. This program is produced in cooperation with Indiana University Health, the strength of a leading national transplant center. Discover the strength at iuhealth.org forward slash transplant. To find more information on this week's show or to download a podcast of this segment, please visit us at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.